This is our, our fourth session, uh, second of today's, and uh, as I was indicating before the first, what I want to do is to take up about, fifth, you know, um, maybe 45, 50 minutes of our time until about 20 after, 10-minute break, and we'll come back for the final 30 minutes. And as I was indicating before, I decided to divide up the section slightly differently. The material covered will be the same. It's just the way I've divided the material so that I can cover verses 31 through 39 in the final 30 minutes or so. So here, you're going to be looking at two sheets, the second handout as well as the third handout for today, sessions 4 and 5, covering chapter 8, verse 1 through 30. So let's turn to Romans chapter 8, shall we? Verses 1 through 30. We'll do this again where we read responsively. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 30. Hear now the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So for the reading of his word. Trinity Hymnal 693 has the beautiful song, Blessed Assurance, that says, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of the Spirit, washed in his blood. Blessed Assurance. Who doesn't want Blessed Assurance? But for me, for many, this is not the case. Um, I wonder how much of our cultural mindset has placed doubts in our hearts and our minds where this kind of independent mindset and subjective feeling often prevail in our minds and our mindset. Let me give you an example this way. Um, In the world, the way that world speaks of maturity is when we grow in our independence. That is, when a child grows up to tie her own shoes when he is able to uh, go to school on his own, when she's able to ride her bike or drive her car, when he's able to go to college alone, when she gets married, he buys a home and has children. These are all independent milestones of uh, maturity. The more you become independent, the more mature you are. The scripture reverses that equation. The more mature you are, the more dependent you become. The older you become, you recognize you cannot and you do not. The more wiser you become, you recognize what you don't know and how much you don't know. And as a result, you become ever more dependent upon the Lord. We're dealing with issues of becoming more like Christ as we think of the larger topic of sanctification. And we've just ended by saying, law cannot save, but law cannot sanctify we cannot save we cannot sanctify oh wretched man that we are here thanks be to god through the grace of our lord jesus christ is the declaration given and this is where chapter 8 picks up to remind us that in terms of our journey of life as we are saved by grace we continue to be transformed by grace by the work of of the Holy Spirit. That is, God does the work, is the point. And this is why for us, as we turn to chapter 8, we recognize that there's a concentration of terminology. You might have noticed that I've referred to this notion several times. How often does a singular word occur in that area? That is usually a good indication of what the theme of that passage or that chapter is. 
And here there is a great repetition of the word spirit. For as we think about the fact that God is the one who saves and sanctifies, we, as we struggle with our sin, as we talked about in chapter 7, we have someone in our corner. And that someone in our corner is the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times in chapter chapter 8. In comparison, actually the word that's translated spirit, which is in Greek is pneuma, actually occurs 21 times. But a couple of those times, it actually refers to our own spirit. 19 times, it refers to the third person of the Trinity. However, the words do not occur evenly. 15 times of it occurs up to verse 17 from verse 1. Four times in 18 through 39, especially in 31. This is how we are understanding this kind of discussion. But in this, the Holy Spirit is clearly taking center stage in chapter 8. However, it's not about who he is. He's not giving us a theological lesson on the nature and the person of the Holy Spirit. Rather, it's about what he does. Paul focuses on the blessings conferred upon the believers by the Spirit as you and I continue to struggle with our sinfulness. As we do so, we want to see the Holy Spirit at work. And we want to talk about that in five things Covered over both of those outlines, my apologies for the change. I will mention them very prominently as we begin. But the first thing is verses 1 through 4. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. Christ Jesus has fulfilled the law completely and perfectly, something that we could not do according to verse 2. By his death on the cross, Christ Jesus has met the righteous requirement of the law, according to verse 4, and the punishment and condemnation we deserve in sin have been satisfied in Christ, in us and for us, we're told. This is why Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This, the Holy Spirit applies to us. This is why Paul is able to say in Romans chapter 6 that dying and rising with Christ means that we now live in the new way of the Spirit, according to verse 6 of chapter 7. It's the Spirit that applies life to us, and it's the Spirit that characterizes our new life in the Son. We live literally in the Spirit's age, not in the new age-ish concept, but simply the Spirit applies the work of redemption of Christ Jesus into our hearts and into our lives. Thus, the Spirit gives life. But the second thing that he says that Spirit does is found in 5 through 13. That is, the Spirit gives us strength. Or perhaps another way to say it, the Spirit empowers us. There is tendency to focus on the needs and desires and satisfaction of our own flesh. We are inwardly driven and we're very aware of our needs and our desires and wishes. And as he points out that there is a mind that is set on the flesh, five and seven, mindset, this mindset militates against God's law and cannot ultimately please God, verse eight says. This should not be for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And he tells us why this should not be. First of all, it should not be because of who you are. 
Who we are is that we are people in the Spirit. In verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, he says. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul uses this union language without any distinction between the Spirit and Christ in verse 9 and 10. Those who are in Christ are also who are in the Spirit. There is a tendency in theological one that seems to separate being in Christ along with being in the Spirit. But that ain't so in Scripture. If you're in Christ, you're in the Spirit, is what Scripture says. This is not to confuse the persons or the works of the Trinity by identifying the Father with the Son or the Son with the Spirit. It is rather to emphasize that the work of salvation, both justification and sanctification, are Trinitarian endeavors. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all engaged. They do not have different purposes nor intentions. Their work is one and the same. What the Father does, He does through the Son. And what the Son does, He does through the Spirit. This is a Trinitarian God at work. And here, when when Paul declares, we are in Christ, he means that we are in the Spirit. And if you're in Christ, in Spirit, this fleshly following ought not to be. Because that's not who you are. That's not who you are. We need to be reminded over and over again of our identity. That's not who we are. Over and over again, we're told that this is a testimony of our identity. But it's not only that being in Christ is our identity only, but the Spirit enables you, empowers you to overcome sin. Christ is in you, the Spirit dwells in you, and the Spirit of life is in you, he says repeatedly. Why is this important to us, for us to know that the Spirit dwells in you? Because the Spirit is the very Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, according to verse 11. It's the Spirit that raised the dead to life. It's the Spirit that breathes life into those who are lifeless. It's the Spirit that hovered over and created the heavens and the earth. It's the Spirit that through His Word brought Lazarus out of the grave. It's that very Spirit that lives in you. What's amazing about Colossians 1.24, as Paul talks about his own ministry, he says in that verse, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, he says. And I've always found that to be curious. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Sadistic, right? Someone who loves pain. I've seen a lot of people do a lot of exercises. This thing called CrossFit. No mean to offend anyone who are involved in it. Blessings to you. Uh, But it seems like self-inflicted pain from my vantage point often in terms of what actually takes place. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, Paul is not saying, I rejoice because of my sufferings. As if he's been welcoming and desiring suffering in order that he may feel better about himself is not what he means. The way to translate that is to say, now I rejoice in the midst of my suffering. It's not because of the suffering he rejoices, 
But in the maelstrom and, and the storm of suffering, even in the midst of it, he rejoices. How is he able to rejoice in the midst of the suffering? He says, according to chapter 1, verse 29 of Colossians, because he struggles with all his energy that powerfully works within me, is what he says. Listen to that again. Because he struggles with all... This is not Paul saying. He's saying, I struggle with his energy that powerfully works within me. Who is he talking about? He's not talking about his energy. He's talking about alien energy. Not in the sense of this kind of otherworldliness that we often think of, but it's about God at work in him. His energy powerfully working in Paul. This is why Paul is able to say in chapter 8, verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. He did not say, by your physical strength you put to death the deeds of the body. He did not say, by your unending willpower you put to death the deeds of a body. He did not say, by the cleverness of psychology and philosophy around you, you put to death the deeds of the body. He says, by the Spirit. It's an instrumental clause here. What puts to death the deeds of our body is the Spirit. It's the Spirit in us, who dwells in us, who works in us. It is God in the Spirit who empowers and encourages us to put to death our sinful nature. This is where he repeats the notion of mortification. Put to death, he says, by the Spirit. It's not what we do. It's what the Spirit does. What we do is ask for his strength and his power. And John Owen, that famous Puritan, once said, do you mortify your sin, he asked? Do you make it your daily work to mortify your sin? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. But can you imagine, for those of you who have been struggling with sin that perhaps is not even shared with your closest ones, oftentimes our characters are most clearly displayed behind closed doors when no one else knows. Perhaps things that you've hidden and perhaps you have not even confessed because you believe that to reveal that is to risk others no longer loving you or wanting to be with you. These sins, these things nag at us. They continue. And what we're told is, you cannot change it. You cannot change it. It's the Spirit in you as you rely upon Him that kills the sins in your body. It's only it that can do the work of mortifying your sins. We become ever more dependent upon the Spirit. Friends, I'm sure you've done this. Have you come to Him and asked Him for His strength, His empowering, His aid, to deal with your sinfulness? 
Have you considered that it's your utter dependence upon him that can only be the only way that deals with the correction necessary in our hearts, in our speech, in our actions? Here, it is by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit not only gives life, the Spirit strengthens and empowers us. The third thing that Spirit does is that the Spirit gives testimony. I want to read this part again because it is one of my favorites where he says in verses 14 through 17, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Spirit gives testimony. What testimony does he give? That we are sons and daughters of God. Notice that every one of those verses, 14, 15, 16, and 17 I just read, each of them repeats sons, daughters, children idea. So 14 says sons of God, 15 says as sons, 16 says children of God, 817 says children. We now have a new relationship. It's about who we are again, isn't it? Not only are we in Christ in the Spirit, We are called sons and daughters of God. We have a new relationship. It's not only that we stand before our king and our master, no longer condemned based on the work and merit of Christ Jesus our Lord. We have an intimate relationship with him. We have access to the Father. Paul is referring to the Roman practice whereby a man could formally confer on a child all the legal rights of a birth child. This is why one prominent uh, New Testament scholar named F.F. Bruce talks about adoption this way when he says, the term adoption may have a somewhat artificial sound in our ears. But in the Roman world of the first century AD, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetrate, perpetrate, perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He has no wit, not in the smallest degree, inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. You might remember the movie The Gladiator where the details can be questioned, but one of the issues was Marcus Aurelius the emperor looking for his rightful heir because his son was unworthy. When the emperor finds someone, that person chosen bears the image as well as the characteristics desired, and he has every right and privilege of the one adopted into the family. This is what he wants to say. We have special rights and special privileges as sons and daughters of God. It's not a relationship that's based on slavery, and it's not based on fear, he says in verse 15. This is different than the kind of foster adoption that we see 
My wife, as I mentioned last night, is an adoption, is a social worker. She works now in a hospital setting, but she used to work for Olive Crest dealing with foster adoption program in Orange County and San Diego. That means these are children who come from at-risk families and placed into new families. But the transition is always very difficult. The reason is foster adoption or foster rearing, as much as the parents intend good, oftentimes the children, because of their past experiences, have a hard time adopting to it. Because for them, it may seem temporary, provisional, and often probationary. That is, if you don't do well, they won't want you. Can you imagine what that fear looks like? If you're always thinking you have to be on your best behavior or else you're going to be rejected. Often the way we deal with our Father in Heaven is that we have that foster adoption notion in mind. We act as if we are temporary sons and daughters, provisional sons and daughters, probationary sons and daughters. But that's not how it is. We are adopted, we are told, not only adopted, which itself is a special privilege as well as honor, but we are heirs, we're told. In fact, we bear his name as the baptism ceremony is a naming ceremony into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are baptized according to Matthew chapter 28. We bear the name of God. We are heirs. And not only are we heirs, we are fellow heirs with Christ. He is our older brother. That is, whatever Christ possesses as heir of all things belongs to us. All that belongs to Christ belongs to his people. This is why one of the chapters in the Westminster Confessions, often ignored, now being remedied in many ways because of publications, is chapter 12, which is on adoption. Uh, I know that confessions don't sound all that beautiful all the time. It sounds like a boring thing to study, although from what I can gather, you seem to enjoy it. Here, Westminster Confessions chapter 12 is an indication as well as bringing together of the notion of adoption when it says this, all those that are justified, God vouchsafes in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which we are taken into the chamber and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by his as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. What a beautiful statement that is of who you are. We are sons and daughters of God. I wonder how knowing that changes us. I wonder how the knowledge that we can never be forsaken and forgotten changes our priorities and our conduct. I wonder how that in terms of approaching the Father as if a child approaching the Father allows us to come before Him in dependence. I wonder how knowing that the Lord protects us and forgives us 
allows us to approach Him with freedom and confidence that we would not normally have. Here, this is who we are. The Spirit testifies we are sons and daughters. For those of you who are parents here, may I just emphasize, this is one of our struggles, isn't it? Because one of the things that I struggle with is teaching my children life of grace that properly reflects God. Instead, what I reflect oftentimes is a life of a father who is covenanted by works. You please me, I give you rewards. You displease me, then you get a grounding, is the mindset we have. I wonder what they learn from me often. Um, this came home in, in, in a different way. Um, I don't know if you know, I'm Asian American. And uh, <laughs> I, I, um, I, I came from Korea when I was 10. There's a, there is a caricature about uh, desiring education and those kind of things. And this is going to come through this way. So forgive me as I say it this way, because I don't mean any offense by this at all. When he was about three years old, Simeon, and uh, we were walking through Target, and at one point he turned to mom and daddy and said, Mommy and daddy, I want to walk here, is what he said. He couldn't see ours very well. I want to walk here. As immigrant parents, I was hoping that he might want to go to do something bigger, is what I was thinking. So I turned to him and said, Simeon, do you want to own Target? Because that would obviously redeem it. Do you, do you want to be a regional manager? Uh, no, his reply to me was, no, I want to be a scanner. The, the scan sound. He loved the scanning sound. Beep, beep, beep. That's what I want to do for the rest of our lives. That one needs a lot of prayer. Um, last year, he's seven. He's going through second grade. And so usually my wife goes to school and spends time with him over lunch in terms of when parents come. I don't know why they do that. It takes me away from my work. And uh, my wife forced me. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I love my kids. And um, it just usually never worked out. But this time it worked out, and I went and joined him. I learned a couple things. First of all, he was embarrassed to pray in public. And so I prayed as loud as I can just to make the point that he ought not to be embarrassed by that. But the second thing I thought that was kind of interesting was the principal walked by. And she had this kid following her. I said, hey, wh why is that kid following your principal? And he said, oh, every week or every other week, they, they draw a name out from a hat. And this kid has an option of being anything he or she wants to be on campus. Most popular are uh, the principal or vice principal or PE teachers uh, for some reason. They want to follow them the whole day. I said, hey, Simeon, what do you want to be when you're chosen or if you're chosen? He says, oh, oh, I want to be Mr. Randy. Never heard of him. Who's Mr. Randy? He says, oh, I don't know what they call him, but um, he cleans up the school. You want to be a custodian? He goes, yeah, 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 I want to be custodian. Why? He needs a lot of help, he said. <laughs> If he weren't my son, I think I would have patted his back. But because he was my son, lots of education. I, I'm not exactly sure what that will do. Now, the reason I mentioned that to you is, boy, am I marinated with the world's desire 
and standards of what success or failure looks like. Why do I even feel that as a parent? And why do I even, as I look at my child, make him think that some of his desires and aspirations, as pure and honest as they are, make him think that somehow that's unworthy? I know why. It's not him. It's me. Here we talk about and we often praise about, we are engaged in this desire to know that I am a child of God. And Simeon, you are a child of God. But it seems not enough. We're seeking Jesus plus something else in order for us to feel good about who we are and what we ought to be. And when we do so, the way we make decisions about life and our priorities change according to what that extra is, unfortunately. Friends, this is what our children need to know. This is what we need to know. I am a child of God. You are sons and daughters of God. There is no identity that can preempt it. There is no status that is greater. No matter what the world says, and no matter what the world may desire, who we are in Christ Jesus is first and foremost. I am a child of God. That defines who I am. Nothing more, nothing less. And Paul says, this is who you are. And the Spirit testifies to you that's who you are. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God, loved and beloved. So the Spirit gives us life. Spirit empowers us and strengthens us. And the Spirit testifies to our sonship and our daughtership. There is a fourth thing that the Spirit does. Verse 18 through 25. The Spirit gives us proper perspective. The Spirit gives us proper perspective. This is not exactly the way I phrased it in the outline that you have. But the Spirit gives us perspective in this. Did you notice that suffering is all around us? Many of us are no strangers to pain from disease, sadness from losses, or weariness from the daily grind. Our papers and our news are filled with brokenness of people, persecution of the innocents, and often tragedies unimaginable. These are all things that remind all of us who are sons and daughters that this is not our home and things are not the way they're supposed to be. And Paul is a realist. And he frankly admits that suffering on this side of glory is great, perhaps even greater than we've imagined. Not only do we as people suffer, but the whole creation is suffering, he says, groaning and awaiting emancipation from decay and sinful death. And we ourselves suffer not only because of our faith, where Jesus reminded us in 1 John, do not be alarmed if the world hates you. Now that's not something you want to regularly hear, do you? Do not be alarmed, friends, if the world hates you, he said, because they do not know God. But also we suffer because of sin. There are weaknesses. There are diseases. There are weaknesses that we see right around us and brokenness galore. 
He says, however, in the midst of it all, the Holy Spirit gives us perspective. Verse 18 and on tells us, For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That the Spirit reminds us, whether it be 50, 60, 70, 80, if the Lord tarries 100 years of our lives here, in comparison to the eternity that we will spend with God in heaven, it will be but a blink of time. That it gives us perseverance and patience and endurance, and the Spirit reminds us that even the strength is coming from the Lord, and that this suffering does not compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us and in us, we're told. Thus, Paul is able to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we do not lose heart. Not because we're not people who are often discouraged, not because we're people who often misunderstand what's going on. We're told that our best theology is done around 3 o'clock in the morning when we, out of worry and concern for the present or the past or the future, wake up lying awake, sweating, wondering what's going to happen next. We may declare with our theology that God is sovereign. He's providentially watching over us, that he knows our past and our present and the future. But at that moment, 3 o'clock in the morning, when you don't know where that money is going to come through, where your business is going to be flopping, whether your child is safe or not, that is when our deep-seated foundational theology comes through. And Paul simply says, we do not lose heart. No matter what we face, no matter the blackness of our future, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You might recall that C.S. Lewis wrote a book with that title, The Weight of Glory. This weight of glory awaits us. This is why Colossians and elsewhere he reminds us, Look to heaven. Look to heaven, because that's your home. You know, I'm not, I'm not a camper. Um, nature is what you see from afar or something you see on a TV screen, and that's perfectly fine with me. Um, my wife believes, however, very strongly that for our children, we must go camping. It's good for them. So we leave our perfectly functioning home, small, (laughs) and go to a place where there is no heater, nor air conditioning, and sweat as much as we can. We have a wonderfully working shower, but kids don't shower for days and smell, but yet that's supposed to be good for them. We have a great kitchen, but we cook with open fire and say the food tastes better. It doesn't. It ruins all your tools. We have a good bed. It's old, but we have a good bed where we sleep on the ground because it's good for us. Um, But there's something about camping that makes me happy, which is when one day goes by, you're going home soon. (laughs) Your longing for home grows. Every day, 
every day is one day closer to going home. <laughs> Imagine yourself walking into, let's say, your campground or retreat center, or maybe even into this office, and you say to yourself, you know what? I don't like the color scheme here. We're going to have to change the color and put a splash of accented wall on one side. Chairs, these are too uncomfortable. We're going to have to put some nice cushiony chairs around so that we can sit around. And to be honest, the light, mm, no good. We're going to have to put some new lights in. Said no one ever when they visited a hotel or a retreat center or an office space. Do you know why? Because it's temporary. It's temporary. It's but for a moment. And you hear what Paul is trying to say is that the Holy Spirit illumines our minds to give us perspective. Perspective so that our eyes are lifted up to see heaven, our real home, where Jesus has prepared a room for us. Our reality there is so real. It's that heavenly reality that dictates the way we live. Just as a new parent alters their life, including what they drink and what they eat, in preparation for a child that has not even come yet, we know what that delayed gratification looks like. Here, we recognize that home to which we're headed is our home. Everything else here is merely a blink of an eye in the eternity of God. And the Spirit allows us to see heaven and place our momentary life in perspective. Because we get so engrossed by looking at ourselves so closely that everything we think we, we believe in is this moment. But the Spirit reminds us God is big. And that's not just the song that our children sing. That's who He is. And he reminds us that there is perspective in life. The whole creation groans for the day of the Lord's return. We ourselves, as we plug along in this day and age, on this side of glory, recognize it's filled with pain, brokenness, and oftentimes overwhelming sense of despair and despondency. Yet, in the midst of it, the Spirit awakens our soul to allow us to hope. So that as verse 24 through 25 say, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And the Spirit allows us to see as God sees. Do you know that oftentimes Scripture equates our faithful wandering as blindness. One of the ways that we see that is found with the story of Elisha and his servant. When the, 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 uh, the enemies wanted to attack the Syrian king, because every time Syrians attacked Israel, they seemed to know where they're going. And when, they call, when he called his people together, how is it that they always know? There is this prophet named Elisha who seems to direct the Israelites where they need to go. Do you remember what happened? He sent an army to actually arrest, to arrest uh, Elisha. And when the servant woke up in the morning, he saw that the enemy was surrounding them. He said, alas, alas, my master, what should we do? We are certainly going to die. Do you remember what Elisha said? He said... 
he who is for us is greater than he who is against us. And he turned to the Lord to pray. Open his eyes that he may see. What's funny is that his, his uh, servant was able to see. He saw the enemy after all, but yet Elisha prays that he sees. And when he opened his eyes, that is when God opened the servant's eyes, do you remember what he saw? The heavenly army surrounding the enemy. Chariots of fire that no one else can see. Friends, this is what God does. Through the Spirit, He illumines our mind, opens our eyes, so that we may see the way He sees. And He directs our attention and our mind to see heaven, our home, so that we can see our present circumstance in life from the perspective of God, allowing us to prioritize what we do, what we decide, how we live according to the priorities of God in his home. This is why the reformers declared Koram Deo, in the presence of God, because that's where we live. The Spirit not only gives us life, he gives us strength. He testifies to us being children of God. The Spirit himself also gives us perspective, and the Spirit prays for us. Verses 26 and 27. He prays for us. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit prays for you. Even if we hope in the coming glory, Paul recognizes that believers are often weak. Forgetfulness, confusion, or outright rebellion often cause us to be in despair and desperation. If we're honest, we have blind spots that prevent us from recognizing our need. Even when we know and understand the problem, we do not know how to pray as we ought. Have you ever thought about that? Even when we know the problem, we don't know how to pray with discernment and the will of God. We are often insecure in our prayers. My grandmother is uh, uh, 96 years old. How do you pray for her as she oftentimes is struggling? We don't know. Because we know that she is better with the Lord in terms of quality of life. But as human beings, we desire her to be with us. And we approach God with insecurity because we don't know how to pray. And in times of trouble, this becomes even more acute because we do not want to ask for anything contrary to the mind and the will of God. Even more problematic, our weakness is not only intellectual, but also spiritual. We just do not want to pray. If we're frank and honest with one another, we don't like to pray. We feel this way sometimes because we think that we can do it, or perhaps we believe that God cannot. Paul Miller, in his book called Praying Life, says, One of the subtlest hindrances to prayer is probably the most pervasive. In the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. Because we can do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it is quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents make us structurally independent from God. For such a time, the Holy Spirit teaches us how to pray. 
the way a father teaches his daughter how to ride a bike. As a gentle counselor, he directs us to know what to pray for and what not to. He instructs us as to our need and to the promises of God which refer to that need. He shows us where our deficiencies are, what our sins are, and what our necessities are. He sheds light upon our condition and makes us feel deeply our helplessness, sinfulness, and dire poverty. And then he casts the same light upon the promises found in the Word of God. Moreover, the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us the way the Son intercedes for us before the Father. When Paul says that he intercedes, that the Spirit intercedes with groans that words cannot express, I don't think that it means ineffable. That is, it's incomprehensible. But it means unspoken. Similarly, to the groanings of the creation awaiting God, this is a figurative phrase that indicates this longing and desire that we have. And most importantly, He advocates us on behalf of the saints because He knows us and He knows the will of God. He prays for us. He's praying for you right now because He knows your needs even more than you know your needs. And not only does He know your needs, He knows the mind of God. You know why? Because He's God. But finally, and this is the last point I want to end with, is that the Spirit teaches us to trust. Not trusting in ourselves, but to trust in Him. Because the road is tough at times. The ups and downs are severe. And there are days of success and often days of failure. This is why he says this in 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These are probably one of the most abused verses in in the whole Bible. Almost as much as I can do all things in Christ. What does Paul intend to say with these verses? Do you remember what I said about controlling question or issue? Here it's not what we want to gain out of the verse. It's what's Paul's intention in those words. Here the immediate context is verse 18, the sufferings of this present time. In the midst of suffering and uncertainties, God is in charge is the point. He is powerful and he takes care of us. Therefore, we need to note well what he intends to say. That when he says good, he does not mean material wealth or physical health. Believing in Christ does not mean that somehow we suddenly become successful and suddenly become as strong as a young man or woman. But he has in mind the end times glory. The promise to us is that there is nothing in this world that is not intended by God to assist us on our earthly pilgrimage and to bring us safely home and to certainly to the glorious destination of that journey. He will bring us home. 
and nothing will be spared until we see him face to face. All the good necessary until that day. But it's not only the good that he provides to get us there. Here, the final verse is often referred to as the golden chain. It's the crux of a lot of the debates theologically in terms of the order of salvation and so on. But the golden chain, as it's referred to, is not primarily about our doctrine of salvation. The word that we use for that is soteriology. Certainly, this verse has some important things to say about our doctrine of salvation. So don't get me wrong. There are indications and ideas here. But the question is, why does he say this here, is the question. Here, the technical discussion often masks the intention behind Paul's words. The intention is, God is in charge. God has a plan, and he is trustworthy. He will bring you to that glory. Nothing happens by chance, and those who love the Lord can trust in his care and providence. After all, we are his children. He is in charge, and he is powerful, and he cares for his sons and daughters. He will bring you home. Friends, I'm not sure what mindset you're in, where you are in your life, both circumstantially or spiritually. But hear what Paul says. The Spirit is here to aid you. He gives you life. He empowers you so that by the Spirit you may put to death your sins. He testifies to your sonship and daughtership. He gives us perspective so that we may see heaven and know where we are headed. He teaches you to pray and he prays for you. And then the Spirit helps us to trust in God who is indeed faithful to us and trustworthy. He is faithful, not us. Ten minutes break, and then the final session.